Blog Talk Radio. weekend to all you Metsian folk out there. This is the converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the 60th official edition of a Metsian podcast. We hope all of you had a safe and sound holiday weekend. Uh, we're very safe with any fireworks you might have been shooting off or any fireworks that were being shot off around you. And uh, without further ado, let's bring on our co-conspirators on a Metsian podcast to see how their holidays were. Uh, I'll start up in Connecticut. We'll go from north to south here. And uh, Rich Sparago, uh how was your July 4th weekend? It was real good, Tim. Um, you know, it was a little bit of relaxation, some family. And, you know, as you know, fireworks everywhere were canceled. My town, they were canceled. But um, some people in various neighborhoods took it upon themselves to do some fireworks. And it wasn't just the kind of stuff that's annoying. I mean, they actually put on some good shows. So um, while there wasn't anything official, it, it did feel like the 4th of July, which I thought was not going to happen. So all said and done, you know, it, it, it was um, an abnormal holiday, obviously, you know, for various reasons, but um, but made the best of it. Uh, we're going to go down to Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, and talk to Michael Collant now. And it's interesting what uh, Rich just said about how it did have a feeling of the 4th of July. And I, I had that with watching the fireworks going off in Brooklyn last night. But that crucial element that, that is missing in all of our lives right now, and especially with the July 4th weekend that we're familiar with, and that is uh, the, the game of baseball. Yep. What's going on? Happy Independence Day weekend, gentlemen. Uh, I will say this much. The smell of barbecue is definitely in the air. It was a different 4th of July. That's for sure. Uh, I'm sure, you know, we were talking about normal times. I would have been road tripping somewhere, you know, trying to hit three or four minor league towns in one shot. But here we are. Here we are. And we do have some images out of City Field with some baseball going on. Uh, um, it, it's kind of weird, Rich, having some something to talk about when it comes to on the field in some fashion. And, we're only going to be getting about three games, but the, the I liked the fact that they're calling it summer camp. There is something charming about it, and, and the way it, it this entire thing, this experience of baseball, hopefully during COVID-19, it, it, it just starting off as unique as this entire experience has been. Yeah, you know, it, it's to me it's such a – a mixed bag, Sam, because, you know, let's start with the obvious. It's great. I mean, the fact that we see images of real baseball happening at City Field, you know, guys in the box, I'm not sure if you saw it today, the image of them doing the base running drills and Jed Lowry, you know, was obviously hob- you know, not moving well, so that, of course, made the news. So we're seeing the stuff we want to see. A Cespedes hit a ball, and I think it was um, – it wasn't Puma. I think it was the Como – who put it up on his Twitter and said, if you listen at the end, you can hear the ball hitting the empty seat and, it, and you can hear it. So that's great stuff. I mean, you see DeGrom, they pitch a simulated game. You know, DeGrom, you, you, 
saw him uh, pitch, pitch to a couple of batters. It's great. It's back. It's all that. But then the other side of it is it reminds you of just how different this is. You, know, you saw the images of Dom Smith with the mask on at first base. You saw the images of Luis Rojas and Brody Van Wagenen with masks on in the outfield. And then the other thing that, you know, is certainly drilled into our heads by the reporters is that they're not allowed to go near the guys. You know, they're up, I guess, in the press box while the guys are on the field, but they're not allowed to interview them face-to-face. They're doing their interviews uh, via Zoom. So um, so while, while on the one hand it, it kind of feels great and kind of feels normal, other than where we are in the calendar, of course, but on the other, you know, you, you see some of this stuff and you see – some of the differences, and it reminds you, you know, just how different 2020 is. Yeah, and Mike, you know, there have been some players opting out, David Price, Ian Desmond, uh, um, and, of course, Mike Trout's been outspoken, especially since he has a, his wife is pregnant, I believe. Um, but Steph Lugo was saying, you know, we have a job to do, and I, I can't wait to get out there uh, to get everything back to normal in some fashion. So it, it, it's interesting the way all of this uh, clashes to try to get baseball going again in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I respect both sides. I, I respect uh, anybody who uh, chooses to opt out due to family concerns. Uh, I respect that. I understand that as a family man. Uh, I also respect work ethic. You know, I'm not quite sure what Seth Lugo's family situation is, his immediate family, how big it might be. Uh, you know, but I, I do respect work ethic, and, and I do believe that uh, to be a professional, you must show up and, you know, perform. Uh, and I have a great deal of respect for that. So I have respect for both sides, and I will no way, shape, shape way, or form uh, look down on anyone one way or, or the other. Yeah, I would certainly agree. So let's let's get down to the nitty-gritty about what summer camp, quote-unquote, brings out in, in all of us and, and, and baseball and, and the reporting of it in particular. So things to come out of yesterday's camp and today's camp, Rich. Um, of course, you know, the headlines you see with the New York Post, Jacob deGrom looks dominant during simulated Mets game. Uh, on MetsmerizedOnline.com, Jed Lowry, a full go in Mets camp. And, of course, we heard the, uh, Michael Conforto uh, having been quoted as saying, Johannes Cespedes looked like a monster out there. Uh, he was doing some running in the outfield. Uh, what are some of the other things that, that uh, for, for one thing, obviously it's the first day, so it's both ridiculous to see how, how overblown some of these in, in sensationalized these headlines are, but at the same time, doesn't it just give you – like like a tickle your insides that baseball's back this way. They can do these speculation and these dreams and these hopes once more. Yeah, you know, so some of the um, storylines out of Mets camp, it's interesting. I'll go with this one. You know, Michael Conforto is saying that, of course, it outs Espedes being a monster and all that, which is great. But he also said that the Mets have gone above and beyond when it comes to safety protocols. And, um and I think that's a you know kudos to the Mets for doing that for making um, for for making good strides in that regard. And they're not always necessarily the most uh, user friendly organization, so good for them. So I think that's a major positive. And then I get we'll probably get to the uh, the COVID nineteen testing and and the impact throughout baseball. But you know the Mets have have 
kind of skated out of this pretty good. I mean, they have one player on the 40-man roster who um, is not active right now because of it. Obviously, they can't. Uh, maybe that player hasn't given permission, so they're not able to say the name. But you know, when you think about it, it hasn't really, knock on wood, touched the Mets to this point to a great degree. When you see how it's impacted other teams, you know, it's certainly much, much more of an impact there. So, a lot of what's going on at um, at Mets camp is positive. You know, we're hearing about baseball, we're hearing about Degrom, hearing about Cespedes, hearing you know Conforto talk about Cespedes and. And Lowry, a full go, which I find strange, having just looked at the video of him running to first base, but they say he's a full go. Um, which, by the way, I'm not sure if you caught it. He still <laughs> says that he doesn't want to disclose his injury. He said, I'll let the Twitterverse uh, worry about that. He goes, I'm not going to disclose what the injury is. Okay, whatever. <laughs> so what does um, that mean? Just for us exactly. to speculate, continue to speculate, so we don't have uh, a name for it specifically? Whatever. Right, uh, right. You know, I mean, what is it, like an arthritis in his leg or something like that? Um, I mean, I'm just guessing. But is it something like that where maybe he doesn't want to, you know, face the, uh, the, the, I guess, the rhythm? I mean, you know, well, it, like, right? <laughs> sorry, sorry, I'm going to go right back to you, Rich, but I'm going to just to make sure, just because I, I think you have a really good knowledge of everything going on with the way the summer camp's going to work. Uh, you know, because I'm I'm a little I I would have to say that like I kind of need like a four dummies understanding of of the way COVID's going to work, the way the way everything's working. But you know, just to quickly make a clip about the whole Jed Lowry thing, you know, it, it's so ridiculous. We don't know what the injury is, Mike. But but at the same time, I mean, this guy was like the the spinning image of good health before he comes to the Mets. And, and, you know, Rich is speculating, like, what could it be, arthritis or something? It's just like voodoo juju in that knee. It's just this this thing that happens with some of these players with the Mets that, that like, all of a sudden they're never heard from again. Yeah, you know, this, this isn't football. You know, let everyone know what's going on. Uh, but Jed Lowry, you know, I saw, I saw him uh, – play a rehab game with the Cyclones last season. I saw two at-bats. He looked terrible. Struck out both times. I think four pitches. Uh, so, I, I don't know what the big secret is. Take it from there. You know, I, I mean, we're not waiting for an injury report so we can go gamble uh, on this week's games, you know? Let us know what's going on. What is the secret? This is baseball. Yeah, and and Rich, you know, you brought up how the Mets have not been uh, so far so good, touched too badly by the the COVID situation. Um, but but you know, you you brought it up in in uh, some of this fashion as to like how this is going to be worked out. Uh, opening day, I believe, is in two weeks from now. So what is the plan? Uh, and, and either they're releasing the schedule today or they're releasing it tomorrow. But what is the plan for the next two weeks? Well. I guess the guys will be tested daily, and if a guy – it's two things. If a guy tests positive or has been around someone or has been exposed, we'll call it, um, then what will happen is there's a COVID IL, and these guys who are in either of those situations will be on the COVID IL, which is 21 days long. So, you know, if, if let's just say XYZ player tests positive and then – ABC player says, you know, I was with him, you know, we went out to dinner, we shared an Uber, which you're not supposed to do, but just making an example. Um, and so now both those guys will go on the 21-day COVID IL, and they obviously cannot come back until they test negative. So um, what, what it will be, it, it's going to be simulated games, it's going to be daily testing. 
as you mentioned earlier in the opening, probably three, up to three are allowed, you know, preseason games, you want to call them summer training games, if you will, uh, will be allowed in the next couple of weeks. And then, and then it's all systems go. So, um, yeah, that's the plan is the plan is just to, you know, keep them isolated at City Field. The other thing that, that you probably are aware of is that workouts now are in three phases because they're trying to keep, you know, social distancing, I suppose. If, I'm not sure if you can really call it that with all these guys, but they're trying to have as few people as possible, as logistically possible. So they're working out morning, afternoon, and night. Now that will change as we get closer. They'll start doing full team workouts, but that hasn't even happened yet. So, um, yeah, so that's, I guess the plan is to go from these, you know, broken up workouts to gradually start bringing everybody together, have the simulated games, maybe some squad games, you know, maybe about a week from now, then some games against other teams, and then get ready to go. Um, yeah, we're about two and a half weeks out from the beginning of the season. So, uh, again, I don't think we have a schedule yet, but it, it would you seem in terms of these three games, my guess is like one of them, maybe even two of them would be against the Yankees. I mean, if you're only doing three games, you you could probably do one within vicinity and then maybe Philadelphia and get going. I My understanding of the plan is from what I heard from Brian Cashman. They asked Brian Cashman, I think, two days ago maybe. They said, um, if you do play summer training games, would it be against the Mets? He said, and in all likelihood, the games would be against the Mets, just to try to minimize traveling. Right. So uh, I think all three would be against, which is kind of weird, but they'd you know, probably just mix it up and, and you know, either two in Queens on the Bronx or vice versa. But, again, I guess they don't want to put these guys on a bus. It would make less sense for them to play the Phillies because they're in the division. They're going to be playing them ten times. You know, you could, get on, you could make a ride out to Pittsburgh. You're not going to be seeing the Pirates this year. I would think that would be um, – something that might make some sense but then again you have to be on a plane for an hour to get there plan an hour to get back and maybe they just don't want to go through it maybe they'll just, have, just play the yankees three times yeah just have a have an opening series the exhibition series um mike you know this and this brings up exactly where america currently stands with covid uh you know it's been the tests the positive tests have been going up um, people are still dying, but the death rate is not nearly what it used to be. Um, and it, it's obviously something that you really have to monitor on a daily basis to see where the numbers are. But as we speak today, uh, every, everything seemed rather optimistic that baseball is going to uh, take off. But it really is a daily monitoring with, with everything the way all of America is doing, much less baseball. Take off. <laughs> you know, countdown and launch are two different things. Uh, I truly call this the calm before the storm. Uh, these teams are only now starting to, you know, get back together and be in each other's company. Uh, this is the first week of that. So, you know, if there's going to be any ramifications COVID-wise, that we will find out somewhere down the line. Uh, so we just got to wait and see. You know, at least baseball has a more cohesive plan than, say, some of these states. You know, and Florida seems to be spiraling out of control. Arizona has a problem. Texas has a problem. A lot of states have a problem here in the Northeast. And I'll continue to say that our governors here in the tri-state area did a good job. We have that down. So New York seems to be a relatively, uh, shall we say, safe place to be right now. Uh, so I don't know. We We shall see. 
time will tell. And I, I truly call this the calm before the storm. Not much to talk about, really. Uh, mm. No, uh, Well, I mean, the games are still three and a half weeks away. They're just now getting together. We have news of an injury. I'm sure you want to get into that was not Mets-related. But uh, is it business as usual? No, not really. Not really. Because every day is still what if, what if, what if, as opposed to, you know, this, that, and the other, with a little bit more certainty in our voices. Yeah, exactly. And, and we should get into that injury brief, you know, briefly. Um, even though it's the hated Yankees, uh, Rich, it, it's still never something that you want to see happen. And uh, you got to give Mashiro Tanaka credit uh, for what, you know, the way he's pitched over these years, especially opting out of Tommy John surgery. Uh, and and he, he's become uh, quite the major leaguer coming over from Japan. Uh, yesterday, unfortunately, during live simulated game uh, at Yankee Stadium, uh, Giancarlo Stanton uh, sent uh, a liner up the middle. Now, I didn't watch the video, and I, I really don't want to, like, explicitly go, like, unless I'm seeing it in the middle of the game and it's getting repeated, I'm not, sat, you know, uh, looking to, to find videos like that. And it, it doesn't sound like you did either, but it sounds like he's okay. Uh, they've ruled, uh, you know, he's been released and he sounds like he's getting back on the mound. Uh, they wouldn't, you know, with the way they talk about concussions these days, it, it, I don't think they'd be talking about it if it was, it, you know, it sounds like he dodged a bullet, no pun intended. Yeah, I, I've i opted out, to use a pun, right? I've opted out of watching the video because stuff like that creeps me out. And um, so what I do know is this. I know that one of the reporters, the Yankee reporters, tweeted that, the sound of it coming off of his head was louder than the sound coming off of Stanton's bat. And that just freaked me out. And I, I could not watch the video at that point. But the good news is he walked off the field under his own power. He went to the hospital yesterday and was released. He didn't even stay the night. Um, so thank goodness, right, that he's okay. And, um, you know, Tanaka's a guy, like you said, he, he's been ridiculously successful since he came, since he came to the States. And uh, he's one that I'll raise my hand and say I was completely wrong on him because he was a, he's a guy who obviously relies on the breaking pitch, sinker, breaking balls. Um, he's not a terribly hard thrower. The ball in Japan is slightly smaller than the ball used in the U.S. And I was telling every, all my Yankee fan friends, I'm like, oh, he's not going to succeed because the ball's different. Obviously, you could spin a smaller ball, go deeper in your hand, you could spin a smaller ball, you get a greater spin rate, the ball's going to break more, it's not going to break like that here, he's going to get pounded, he doesn't throw hard enough. Well, boy, was I wrong. I mean, the guy's been, you know, very successful. So good for him, thank God he's okay. Um, and I'll tell you what, if I do see that video tweeted, I will continue to move right past it because I do not want to see it. Yeah, exactly, and Mike, it's just, it reminds you that, you know, we want to get back to baseball, um, but baseball, just like anything else, uh, uh, reminds you of your mortality, and we're, we're all lucky that it's really only been one death from from a, a other than, I guess, the, the what was it, Jim Crichton, who collapsed from just uh, rupturing his inside uh, from, from uh, a swing. Um, yeah, or did I go ahead? Effect. No, something to that effect. You know, 
Uh, that's being debated as to how exactly he got injured. But Jim Creighton, we're talking about uh, 1860s baseball now. Uh, some believe that he got hurt playing cricket. Uh, a lot of those players used to play cricket and baseball, two words. Uh, the original injury took place in a cricket game. And, again, some of the myths and some of the stories, they vary. There's an argument going on. And then during the game, uh, he swung so mightily, I guess, and he it went for a home run. But as, as he was rounding the bases and rounding third, uh, you know, he collapsed at home. And a few days later, he he passed away from internal bleeding. Uh, you know, again, we're, we're talking 1860s medicine, and uh, you know how that goes. It's rather random in general. Mm. But that's the way the that's the way the myth goes. And uh, you know, to that point in time uh, in baseball history, he went down as the first and the greatest baseball player known to mankind at that point. That point in time, history. And his 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 uh. Headstone, I, I don't know. Well, yeah, Greenwood, Greenwood. Yeah, Greenwood. <laughs> Greenwood over here. I mean, I live there. <laughs> I can't believe I can't spit it out. But uh, his his headstone is the first ever erected monument, etc., dedicated to baseball. It's an obelisk crowned with the baseball on the top. Uh, and that is the first ever, 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 ever. To think that, that people thought so highly of him, and he was only 21 years old, that they thought so highly of him and did that for him in his passing, to me is incredible. And he was so young. And when they uh, yeah. refurbished when they refurbished it and replaced the crown on the top, they also put a uh, plaque at the base of the headstone, baseball's first uh, superstar. So if you're in Brooklyn, go check it out. Sorry with this, Sam. You know, no, no, that's why I was trying to go. There were two players that uh, uh, have died from, uh, you know, c- considering how long baseball's been around and, uh, you know, who, well, who knows what, in terms of bat and ball overall in uh, history. But uh, we're also talking oh. about Ray Chapman, uh, who got beamed by Yankees pitcher Carl May, uh, Carl May, excuse me, and died 12 hours later uh, on August 17, 1920. Um, Rich, you know, I, I have to say, you look at this like, like it's. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. How about uh, who was it? Dizzy, Dizzy Dean didn't slide going into second base and got nailed in the head on the attempted double play. Um, and died. Uh, no, he didn't die. I was just saying uh, when he was pitching oh, well, with yeah. Dodgers, huh. uh, he was on first well, base and the ground ball. He forgot to slide or didn't slide or whatever he was thinking of the shortstop and nailed him right in the noggin. I mean, Rich, it really is remarkable when you consider how dangerous this sport is. As much as people want to say that there's much more dangerous sports out there, and of course, you know, they kind of give baseball, sometimes, you know, the other sports like to say, oh, baseball's of the, you know, of the weaker kind. You know, which, like, I, I remember this line in the movie Goon, which is a hockey movie, this isn't baseball, the coach says, but with a little bit more vulgarity. It's pretty remarkable uh, that baseball has not had more more injuries or deaths of that nature. Isn't it true, though? I mean, you think about it. Add this to the to the equation. Guys didn't wear batting helmets until the late 50s. And so they would go up there with a soft cap on. 
a pitcher, I mean, maybe they weren't throwing quite as hard then. Maybe, you know, a hard thrower was 90-92 or something like that. Um, but still, no protection in on your head. Now, that's – and we all talk – they all talk about how much meaner players were back then. You know, it was more about their livelihood. And, you know, so – I don't know, were pitchers more willing to throw at guys back then? Everything you would hear would indicate so. And now you have that yeah, happening. Yeah, with guys with, right? No helmets. And how the hell does this, you know, how how is it that, that thank goodness, that people, more and more guys haven't gotten hurt? I mean, what I re- the first one I remember was Tony Canigliaro. And, you know, he was oh, hit out of the back, hit in the eye. And one of the most disgusting things you'll ever see. And he did come back, I think it was two years later, and um, and he had, like, a, I think he played one more season, he passed away, you know, maybe ten years later. They're not 100% sure if it was related to the beaning or not, but, um, but my God, I mean, you think about that, right? Think about, it's not a contact sport, but you have a ball moving between 90 and 100 miles an hour that could hit you. Now, granted, players are better protected. They've got the air flaps. The helmets are much better. But look at David Wright. You know, I was at the game when, when he was hit by Kane. Um, imagine what could have happened. You know, if if he did not have a protective – this happened in 2000 and I believe it was 2009. And, you know, helmets were obviously much more advanced. But, but what if he was playing with a soft cap in the 50s or a, a primitive helmet in the early to mid to late 60s even where no air flaps because it hit him right where the air flap was? What in the living hell could have happened to this guy? And you're right. Between that and between the fact that the pitcher is 60 feet 6 inches away, and when he releases the ball, he's probably more like 57 feet away, how does it not happen more often? You know, thank our lucky stars, right? Yeah, that is for sure. I mean, it, it, it's just everything you, you talk about with it. Um, it just, it, it, Mike, it makes me think about some of the things that Leo DeRocher was accused of. He was accused of headhunting, that the Dodgers were, were a, a whole bunch of headhunters. But, you know, the way he was saying is, like, they were throwing at him, he, you know, and he was protecting his guys. So it just kept going tit for tat. And this is during a time when, you know, they were sending Pete Reeser out there to get crushed by a, by a cement wall because he was, he was just that kind of player. Uh, and, you know, Pete Reeser also had to take a few beatings that probably didn't help his, his uh, concussions in the way that he fell apart at the tail end of his career. I mean, it, it is remarkable considering, like Rich just said, that, that you know, all, all, everything would indicate that they were, they were headhunters more than, you know, now, now it's had to be policed. I mean, it's a, it's a big part of policy with baseball these days. Uh, you know, uh, it's it's pretty outstanding to me. I, I think the history of all, even revisionist history. I mean, you go back to we did it just before. Go back to the original days of baseball and put that one in quotes. When instead of throwing out a runner at first base, they what would, what you would call soaked the batter, where you actually threw the ball at the runner, and that's how you made it out. Uh, but bean balls, I mean, pitchers intentionally threw at batters without helmets. To me, that's mind-boggling. <laughs> we look back finally at the history of, uh, of the game, you know, but and, and I, in this age, we look back and laugh, you know, but 
to have that happen now? Oh my goodness! You know, I can only imagine the conversations we have about some of the intimacy back then. You know, I, 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 I always the story that always comes to mind is Willie Mays. Uh, for whatever reason, in this moment, we just forgot who was on the mound. It happens to be Bob Gibson. Well, Willie Mays is digging in and digging in and digging in. Gets ready, looks up, takes a look at Bob Gibson, and thinks to himself, "Oh man, what the hell did I just do?" And fills the hole back in, and then takes it <laughs> <to> that back. <laughs> I mean, think about that. I mean, Bob Gibson openly talked about Rich that if you hit a home run off of him, you know he's throwing at you the next the next time you're up. Well, that and and the best story I ever heard about Bob Gibson, the absolute best Bob Gibson story I ever heard about what we're talking about, was from Bill White, former. Yankee broadcaster, you know, uh, the late Bill White, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you guys heard the story, but he used to tell the story on the air where he and Gibson were roommates when they were teammates on the Cardinals. And then um, Bill White got traded, I believe, to the San Francisco Giants. And first at bat against the Cardinals, White steps in the box, Gibson drilled him. And, and it was like, and White said that he was just astonished. And But as he, like, you know, staggered his way, I don't think he hit him in the head, but as he staggered his way to first base, he got the message. The message was, look, we may be friends, we may have been teammates and may have been roommates, but we're enemies now, dude. And And that was the mentality. I mean, that was the mentality back then. Think of some of the stuff you saw um, you, you saw last year. Uh, when the Mets played Diamondbacks, right, and in that September series, when Wilmer Flores came to bat against Jacob DeGrom, and he smiled at DeGrom, and DeGrom tipped, like, put the hand on the cap. I bet Bob Gibson, like the old cliche, if Bob Gibson were dead, he'd be turning over in his grave watching that. I mean, well, you know, that kind didn't of... Didn't he also, like, hit a home run off of him the next at bat or in that same at bat? He did. He did. <laughs> he did. I believe it was that at bat. Flores, yeah. Um, but, you know, you have the backdrop of Gibson and Bill White, right, teammates, uh, team, teammates, roommates, very good friends. You're traded now. You know what? I may know your wife and your kids and all that, but I'm going to freaking drill you to let you know I'm boss here. That was the mentality back then. And, again, these guys were doing it with, like we've talked about, no protective gear. They didn't go up there with the elbow guards. They didn't go up there with the, with the forearm guards. It was a different world, and yet, there, thank goodness, there isn't this long history of all these guys who have been suffered, you know, potentially mortal injuries on the field. It, it's kind of fascinating when you come right down to it. Different generations, different frame of minds. That's all I'll say. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm and, not and, and, I'll, and this is the way we're going to uh, uh, transition back to the Mets. It's something that uh, I discovered as, you know, I got deeper into my Mets fandom. But coming across the photo of Bob Gibson in a Mets uniform, I was like, what is going on here? And, of course, he, he was a coach uh, at some point under Joe Torre, of course, their connection with the Cardinals. Um, uh, Mike, you know, that, that's kind of a, in many ways, a weirdly, a forgotten moment in Mets history that Bob Gibson is pictured in a Mets uniform. Wasn't lost on me, I'll tell you that much. I'm, a, I, you know, back then in the seventies, I'm fifty-three, so let's put everything in context. Obviously, guys older than me, they know what I'm saying. Uh, you know, when you're a huge National League fan, 
the fact that he was our coach with Joe Torre during the dark years was not lost on me. Uh, you know, I, I relished it. The times I went to the games, I'm like, man, I'm looking at Bob Gibson, you know? Uh, and that's what always made me appreciative of being in New York City and having two teams, uh, the ability to, you know, exploit a second team, a second stadium, a second league prior to interleague, you know, and, and, and soak all that in and get to see players and people and coaches and whatnot that you wouldn't ordinarily see. No, the fact that Bob Gibson was a coach of ours uh, was not lost on me. Uh, I loved seeing him there. Uh, and anybody of that stature, really. But, Rich, do you think sometimes, like, like moments like that in Mets history are kind of lost to the ages? They are, because Gibson, I believe, was a pitching coach for one year. And I, I'm like Mike. It was to me, I remember Gibson and Seaver going up against each other. You know, in, in my, at the time, little kid brain, it seemed like they always faced each other, but I'm sure they faced each other a few times. Um, and it was like this big deal, you know, it would be hyped up. Mike, remember on TV, like, oh, Seaver, Gibson tonight, you got to watch the game, all this kind of thing. And then here was, you know, the, the arch enemy, Gibson, who was now wearing a Mets uniform, coaching with Tori. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> it was like, like Mike said, it was great. You know, this guy that we that we had to hate because the broadcasters told us, you know, there's a big argument, you know, who's better in their prime, Gibson or Seaver, and they would face each other. And there were a couple of, Mike, I'm sure you remember this, but there were a couple of bench-clearing brawls with Gibson and Seaver. Not with each other, but there would be, like, some inside pitches by Seaver, inside pitches by Gibson, the benches would clear. It was not uncommon when they would face each other. And, no, and here was, was Gibson. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go right ahead. No, I'm done. No, that was standard operating procedure, you know, eye for an eye back then. That's the way it was. That's the way they played their game, you know. Yeah. Well, here's how we're going to uh, compartmentalize this in terms of what we're about to talk about. Bob Gibson was there in the first year or two of the Wilsons buying the team with Doubleday, and right now, uh, our dreams may come true. uh, since we've been living a nightmare since they took over <laughs> as solo owners uh, in 2003, there are going to be bids announced soon, uh, the, and, and we're going to see a winning bid. And Now, shameless plug, Rich. Uh, congratulations on becoming a contributor to Mesmerized Online. Uh, and you wrote about this situation. Uh, you wrote about this situation earlier in the week. And uh, if you would allow uh, to enlighten us on what's going on with the Mets ownership situation. Well, thank you for the for the nice words, Sam. And, and yeah, so what? Here's what I know to be true. Allen and Company, they're the holding company that owns the Mets. So they're the ones that you know that that basically they're the bond holders or the the lien, the note holders, and all that. So what they have asked is they have asked that bids for the team be in by July 9th, which is Wednesday. Now, that doesn't mean it's the final bid. I don't know that it is or isn't, I'm not, but I don't believe it to be the final bid. But they want bids in by July 9th. And here's what I know from that point. The, um, the Harris Blitzer group, the people who own the 76ers and the Devils, they will be bidding. Everybody believes they will be bidding, and they will submit a bid. Um, okay, great. The J-Lo A-Rod group, they recently saw – they're going after this hard. Um, they recently got J.P. Morgan on their side, and so now it's, oh, it's wow. um, A-Rod and J-Lo. 
J.P. Morgan is going to back them. And then also, I believe he says his name, Mike Repoli. He's also Queens native. Uh, vitamin water founder, obviously very wealthy man since he sold vitamin water. And um, so he and the owner of the Florida Panthers, uh, Rasparty, they are, they, are now, um, they are now also bidding. So that's all part of one thing. You have A-Rod and J-Lo. You have J.P. Morgan backing them, and you have the vitamin, we'll call him the vitamin water guy and the Florida Panthers guy. Um, they are all in this together, and I think they're going to make a serious run at the Mets. The current thinking is that they will bid about $2 billion. Of course, there's no way to know that, but the current thinking is they will bid about $2 billion, and that A-Rod and J-Lo are coming up with $250 million of that $2 billion. So that's that. Um, and then other bidders, there is a company called the Rubin Brothers, they're real estate moguls out of Canada, and um, and if they may and may not go in. From what I've read, they're hesitating because they might be asked to open their books as a potential owner, and for some reason they don't want to do that, or they might not want to do that. That's speculation, but that's where that one is. And then there's our old buddy Steve Cohen, who um, he said he's not sure. Um, as of when I wrote that piece late last week, he said that he wasn't sure if he was going to be in or not. Now, speculation not from Steve Cohen, but from others who think they know his M.O., is that he's totally in and he's playing possum. So that's where it is as of now. There may be a couple more entrants into the bidding, and that's certainly expected, but that's what we know to this point. What I wonder... And Mike... Mm-hmm. No, I was just going to ask that, you know, we were saying that they, they kind of lost value during this entire time. But at the same time, I mean, if we had these types of people bidding, then uh, – and, and he's saying, you know, J-Lo, they're putting $2 million in here. But if, you know, Steve Cohen's playing possum, that 2.6 number that we uh, had originally heard about, um, it, it sounds like th- that could be – I mean – we could possibly see a $3 billion bid, hypothetically speaking. I mean, it sounds like there's some big players in the game right now, especially if J.P. Morgan just got involved, backing J, back, backing the, the, the biggest faces, really, in the entire thing. Uh, this this could get interesting. If it, it already obviously is. Paying above market value is not out of the question. Sometimes they pay a premium to get what you want. Uh, so you know the numbers. The, the number fluctuated: two point six billion, two point four billion. You know, but the the team is valued somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, let's not forget that they have you know upwards of eight hundred million dollars in outstanding debt. The team and SNY combined. Uh, so that's going to factor into the final sell price. Uh, see how that works out. I wonder. Here's my question. I wonder. Remember back when the Mets, you know, when they were in big, big trouble and they sold off, I think, 20% of the team uh, with shares. And uh, Anthony Scamarucci, Bill Maher, and that's when Steve Cohen came on board, and that's when he bought his shares that he presently owns. But Scamarucci, Bill Maher, there uh, there was a couple others who purchased shares in the Mets. I wonder if they are still shareholders to this day because Fred did do a stock buyback. Uh, now, 
did he negotiate that between S and Y in the club, or because Jeff and Fred also personally purchased uh, stock? So they took, they actually took money out of their own pockets to help the team. Uh, so I wonder how that negotiation took place uh, when Fred performed the, the, the buyback. But I wonder if guys like Scamarucci and Bill Moore are still on board and they represent that anywhere from 15 to 20% minority ownership in the Mets because I think the Wilpons don't own much more than, say, perhaps 80, 82, 83%. Yeah, that sounds about right uh, from what we've heard. And, um, Rich, you know, you just laid out the facts for us. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think um, that if Steve Cohen wants the team, he's going to get the team. I think he has the most resources available to him. I know that he, we all know that he, um, a big deal to him in the first round was he wanted SNY. I'm not sure where all that stands now. I think the A-Rod group, I'm not sure they can compete with Steve Cohen resource-wise, so there's a, I think there's a decent chance that they might end up with it because, you know, you, you look at all they have. I mean, they've got, they've got the Florida Panthers owner, got the vitamin water guy. You know, you've got J.P. Morgan. You've got A-Rod and J-Lo. They're, they're very serious about this. From what the research I've done, I would say that from the surface knowledge I have, the most serious people taking it the most seriously seem to be the A-Rod group. Steve Cohen, is, uh, my impression is he's taking the approach of, look, I have more money than the Bureau of the Mint. So I'm just going to see where this goes, see where the market valuation is on this thing, see if SNY is included or not. I'll make a decision as to whether or not I think this is a good investment. And if I think it is, I'll just buy it. You know, A-Rod and J-Lo are, you know, are, are insignificant. I'll just buy it. And if he feels like for some reason it's not a good investment for him and he pulls out, then I think the it's pretty obvious the A-Rod-J-Lo group they want this thing badly. You know, the, the Harris Blitzer, I mean, who knows? You know, they, they, they own two sports teams. But from what I hear, A-Rod and J-Lo are really trying to marshal their forces to go after this thing big time. So that's where I see it. Yeah, and, you know, we've talked about it before on the podcast, but since it's closer to possibly coming to fruition, um, what do you foresee, Mike, a, a J-Lo, A-Rod ownership group could look like for this team? <laughs> Not what people are expecting. I don't, I don't expect them coming in here uh, and, and, you know, starting up a clown show. I really don't. I think they'll be professional about it. Uh, will they be front and center? At times, to advance their personal careers, that as owners of the Mets, I think they'll be very careful about how they go about their business. Uh, you know, I, I was never a fan of obvious reasons uh, and all those guys. But uh, I'll be fair, and I think uh a pretty savvy business guy. Uh, and I'll give J-Lo that credit as well. I mean, they manage their own professional careers and seem to be doing very well at it. Uh, we're accustomed to them here in New York City. You know, the rest of the country, how they'll be accepted as owners of the Mets. Uh, again, I will point to the Magic Johnson ownership group. 
I think he set a standard, uh, you know, for players. Uh, uh, Michael Jordan, not so much. You know, I, I love that documentary that they did on him because, uh, you know, Jordan never turned out to be the half the executive that his own general manager was. But, uh, no, I, I have no fear about J-Lo and, and A-Rock being owners of the Mets. I think they'll go about their business very professionally. Uh, and they know, you know, having microphones jammed in their faces is not a good thing, you know, and owners know the less they say, the better off things are. So I don't expect anything outrageous out of them. I really don't. So, Rich, uh, you know, for one, when you think about A-Rod in a position where he, he doesn't want a microphone shoved in his face, that's kind of doesn't sound like the two go hand in hand. But um, I'm not sure if you were listening to uh, the fan at any point uh, over the last week, uh, but they were talking about the potential for A-Rod and what he would, you know, want to be, whether he would want to interject as uh, um, a former baseball guy, but whether he would, you know, basically be a Jeff Wilpon from the ownership perspective. Um, I personally think if he were in a role like Jeff Wilpon has, he'd be better at the job than Jeff Wilpon does, even though I, I don't think he'd want to be a day-to-day operator necessarily. Um, but I think he's going to have ideas, and he would have ideas. Um, and some people were saying that, you know, they, that A-Rod should basically stay in his lane. I think uh, I forget exactly who it was was saying on there, but but you know, like there's a lot of different opinions on what it could go, what how it would go, um, what is yours about it, and I think in some fashion I would like to say, don't underestimate him in in a baseball executive form. I would see a Rod if he's successful. I would see a Rod as. Jeff Wilpon light, but also Jeff Wilpon smart, smarter. You know what I mean? So I don't think he would be as front and center as Jeff Wilpon is. I don't think you'd hear nearly as much from him. But I do think that it would be silly to think that he would be not involved at all. Because if you think about all the people I've just named as being, you know, part of his buying group, <laughs> who has the most baseball credibility? I mean, come on. So he's obviously going to have his finger on the pulse. He's obviously going to have some degree of say in what goes on. Now, will he look at it as I'll only jump in when I have to, you know, and I'll play the owner role, you know, as as like, uh, you know, staying away from the day to day, or will he be a bit more involved in that? I don't think you, you'll hear and see nearly as much of him as you do Jeff Wilpon. And the good thing is that it's a rod. When he does speak, when he does have an opinion, look, you could talk about the cheating and the steroids and all that. That happened when he was on the field, and that's bad. We all know that, right? But on the other hand, this man loves the game of baseball. He knows the game of baseball freaking cold. He knows the game cold. He is a historian of this game. He's won in this game. He's been humiliated by this game. So when whatever degree he does get involved, when he does get involved, I have to think it's a good it's a good thing. And it's coming from a base of knowledge and a desire to win. And as a fan, I'm I'm down for that. Why not? Why not? Why not have a guy who when his voice is being heard, 
it's it's coming from a place of knowledge and credibility and a and a hunger to win and especially to beat his buddy Derek Jeter and they're in the same division. Sign me up. <laughs> I really believe it. Uh, Rich, did you see that interview that like CNBC did at some like business convention and, and where all of a sudden A Rod and Jeter realized this was like you know like only two to three years ago or something, and A Rod and Jeter realized that they would have to sit in and you know you could tell that they hadn't really prepared for it, for it, and they were both very wooden and stiff. And the guy just kept bringing up the, the you know, their history and, and everything. And it was obvious that they had been both, they've both basically uh, acknowledged and, and accepted the fact that they don't really care much for one another anymore. And they've moved on. And it was just an awkward moment. I'm not sure if you saw it. I did not, but I could see that, you know, the whole thing with A-Rod having to play third base, you know, in deference to Jeter, even though A-Rod was a great shortstop with Seattle. Um, you know, New York's a very big place. There's a lot of media attention to go around. But when you have an ego like both of those guys do, it's hard for them to be on the same team, be right next to each other on the same infield. I mean, you, you could recognize the fact that you're pursuing a common goal, and that's great. But when your egos are that big, of course there's going to be a little tension, right? You see it in any sport. You see it in any sport with any team where you have where you have really big egos, guys who, you know, guys who are on top of their games. It's often difficult for them. You know, they could certainly play together and and achieve and try to achieve that common goal, but it's often difficult for them to entirely yin and yang well. I think it's silly to think otherwise, personally. And uh, I'll, I'll finish with the A-Rod thing, Mike, like this. Um, just think about it, think about it if, you, if you want uh, on a personal level, on, on a personal level from A-Rod's perspective. He grew up idolizing Keith Hernandez. He grew up rooting for the Mets. He was from New York City. Uh, and he told a story about bumping his head on, like, the bunk bed when, when the ball went through uh, Buckner's legs or something like that, you know. He has a, a personal investment uh, in, in the Mets, it sounds like. The way, the way you can see him speak, it doesn't sound like he's faking that, that it really does uh, bring him back from a nostalgic standpoint. And now he's in a position to possibly buy that team. Like it's it's. Can you imagine what's going through A Rod's head right now? Emotions compel people to do crazy things, like buy baseball teams. You're right, Sam. He grew up a Mets fan. He said so. You know his negotiations with Steve Phillips back in the day. You know went down the toilet. We know that didn't go down very very well. But when you're emotionally invested. Who's to say, you know, what your limits are, how far you will go? So that's a great point. Uh, and if they really want this, hey. You know, but I, I again, I think he'd be, I, yes, will he have a, a voice in operations? Yes, indeed, a very strong voice in operations. He's the owner, after all. But I do think he's smart enough to hire a president of baseball operations as his right-hand man, you know, delegation, and have that man or the two collaborate on who the general manager is. I think he'll play traditionally. 
because I think we've, we've said it. You know, he's such a baseball historian. He knows the historic model. I think he's well aware of that. And I think he will, you know, to avoid the public spotlight, to avoid those uncomfortable moments when they jam microphones in your face, he will hire a baseball president of operations to handle everything. Uh, and, and there you go. And there's your buffer between ownership and baseball operations. And to me, I think that's the smartest way to go. I would agree. And Rich, to, to finish up on that element of it, you know, uh, the, the emotional perspective, what, what say you when thinking about A-Rod uh, and his fandom, as he has uh, so eloquently put it at certain points? Uh, absolutely. I, I think he will, again, I don't know this two, the two Billy number is, is what is believed to be the case. Um, now, does that mean that that's his final offer? Don't know. There's no way to know. Um, but I think A-Rod will push. My gut tells me because of everything Mike said and what you've said, I think he will push as far as he can. I think he wants it badly. I don't think he likes to lose. I think he wants it very badly. Um, he, I think he relishes the limelight. And I think, you know, oh, Derek, you own the Marlins. That, that's interesting. That's so cute. You know what? I own the New York Mets in New York City, dude. I, I think he would love to be able to say that, right? But and and, and also, is, you know, going from, like, right now, you know, he's Yankees. He's, he's been, you know, he was, I think he even still works for them in some fashion. And all of a sudden he'd be a rival. Well, and, and I think he would relish that because, um, remember, the Yankees fired him. Uh, they basically – cut him in the middle of uh, the 2016 season, um, or maybe it was 17, I think it was 16, um, they basically released him, and they said, you're done. And he actually, as of, I think, last year, no longer works for the Yankees, he was a, um, he was a, you're right, he was a coach. He was in spring training in uniform and all that, but he no longer works for them at all, and, right. um, which is, I think is great. And, um, and I think you're right. So that fuels it, too. The Jeter thing fuels it. The competitiveness fuels it. But the only thing is this. I don't want to use the word unlimited because that's obviously not correct, but Steve Cohen has pretty close to unlimited resources. So if he really, really wants it, uh, that's what I really see happening. The market's going to play out. And, you know, maybe the Mets are based on other people, A-Rod and the other groups. Now it's $2.4 billion is, is the current price. So let's just say that. After all the bids are in and maybe they, you know, up their bids. Cohen's going to sit back. I can literally see him sitting back being like, right, okay, well, I'll go as high as 2.5. Let's see where it is. And, and then if he decides that, whatever the number is, he wants it at that price, he'll brush the rest of those bitters off like you would brush confectioner sugar from a donut off your shirt. I mean, and he'll just buy them. That, that's what he's, if he wants it badly enough, he will buy them. Um, as a fan, I want A-Rod to own it. You could probably tell. And I want the A-Rod group to own it. And, um, and so my hope is that where the market ends up, Cohen's like, you know what? They're not putting in SNY. I'm not doing this. This is this, they're not worth this. And, and then it becomes, you know, then then it's the next bidder down. But I think again, as, as long as Cohen wants something, Cohen will get that thing. And that's not bad either, because you know, having somebody with incredible resources as your team owner is not a bad thing. And I think we know enough of what that's not like, you know, from history. So that'll be a good thing too. I people commented on the post I did from MO. 
mostly what they were saying is July 9th, a lot of people said July 9th is Independence Day for the Mets because that's the day when the bids are coming in <laughs> and we can finally be independent of the Wilpon. So that's where, that's where that stands. That's where the mentality stands right now. Well, you know, the question is, is it, it's, it's, a, it's, our declaration of independence is when the bids come in, Mike. You know, we could talk about this forever. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, but we we still have to fight the Revolutionary War, right? <laughs> there you go. No, war is not meant to be pretty. So this is going to be long and ugly. And, and I'll think, you know, again, like I said, we could really talk about it all night, which we're not going to be doing. But to wrap up this thing, even though I keep saying we're wrapping it up, but it, there's always something else to talk about. I don't see how you can't include SNY in this. Like, are, the Wilpons just, like, it's really funny the way they keep, you know, trying to inch their toe, you know, keep their toe in there just a little bit longer. They're their own worst enemy. Mike, sorry. Mike. <laughs> yeah, they're their own worst enemy. And with that, I will ask Rich uh, first whether there's any other thing you want to touch on before we look at this very short list of number 60. The only thing I would add, if you guys want to jump on it, is um, I have uh, my level of concern about the season A starting and B finishing. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being not concerned at all and 10 being extremely um, I would say that my level right now is probably about a three. Um, it was a one a week ago. But the thing is, you know, with guys opting out, with um, the COVID test like we talked about earlier, uh, great. 1.2% is great. But that's just the beginning, like we said. And, um, and so, you know, let's see where all that goes. And Manfred said something this week where he said, you know, it could get to a point where we have to ask ourselves, what are we really doing? You know, or if it, it, meaning like if not a lot of guys opt out and the game doesn't look like itself, and guys have a, and you have a lot of COVID, which actually would almost force it. Not so much from the fact that you can't put a good team on the field, just it would be like a public outcry. You know, these guys are dropping like flies with the COVID; it has to stop. So, I just want to wonder where your heads are. I mean, my my level of concern is about a, I'll call it a three slash four now. Uh, where are you guys with it? Mike, go ahead. I'm uh, I'm half in, half out. You know, they can pull it off great. I'm not expecting much. Uh, uh, I still expect the season to get canceled at some point. I'm hopeful, for everyone's sake. But I'm not confident. Well, I'll tell you, it looks like they're really trying somehow, some way uh, uh, to, to figure out. And, you know, like we've been talking about, uh, uh, it seems, and hopefully – it's not the case that New York has what's happening to the rest of the country catch up to it. Um, you know, it seems to me, based off of what we, we see unfolding, is that even though there are cases going on, and, uh, we seem to be able to fight them better. And hopefully that keep, continues to be the case and we don't see a spike in deaths as well. So I would say I'm around where you are, Rich, I'll go with two three as opposed to your three four <laughs> to be to be uh, um, just to you know throw some uh, contrasting views out there. But 
I, I like the fact that they're, they seem, even though they didn't seem to be able to get together in terms of like negotiations, uh, that those were all labor issues. And again, I think, I think I brought this up uh, either on the last podcast or before it seemed like it was the players punting in many ways from the, uh, the labor standpoint. Um, cause they knew they'd eventually they'd, they'd get this thing going one way or another, or at least try to. So I, I think it, it it's good to see that everything seems to be working out in terms of how they're going to go about it. Uh, we'll probably get either like every other day updates if it starts to, I mean, right now it was a 1.2% for the first test. And I'm guessing we're just going to keep hearing the rolling tests uh, that are going on a daily basis and see what's what. Uh, so it's a fluid situation. And, um, we're we're going to uh we we await with bated breath the you know hoping that baseball is able to return and that COVID uh, continues to be I, I think a lot of also is that people probably are more asymptomatic right now who do end up having it uh, because of the sunlight and because people have been outside a little bit more um, and, and so the virus is weakening as viruses continue to mutate they weaken one way or another. Uh, so that that could be a lot of different factors as to what we're seeing, and we're just going to have to keep paying attention and hope that – I mean, this is a very telling week, you guys, with what is going to happen with not only baseball but America as a whole as uh, in terms of these COVID numbers. Um, so, yeah, you know, let, let's let's see what's what. Uh, you've been listening to a Met Team podcast with Sam Rich and Mike, and, and we're going to go – very briefly, it, it, it would seem to the uh, the history part of our well, other than the Bob Gibson that we were talking about earlier, but uh, the the Mets, uh, I think it's all players, you guys, to wear number sixty in Mets history is a pretty underwhelming, and, and you know I, I forget whether it was probably Louis uh, Ayala the reason why we brought uh, brought Scott Schoenweiss up last time, Rich. Uh, but he leads the, the names off here, and, and very uh, underwhelming list indeed, as we especially, you know, it's, we're getting deeper into this uh, into these numbers. Yeah, Scott Schoenweiss, John Roush, P.J. Conlon is what I have. Is that what you have? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Um, so Schoenweiss, I mean, he gave up a few, you know, unfortunate hits in the 2007 season. Uh, going down down the stretch, um, so, and I know that he um, he has a very good sense of humor. You know, he's on Twitter and and he constantly makes jokes about how, you know, like if they're short on players, I'm still available. A good guy, you know, good sense of humor. I, I think he's remembered in in Metsville that um, he surrendered some unfortunately some some pretty damning <laughs> hits that that cost the Mets, and we all know uh, what those were, but. Um, but that's showing Weiss. Roush, what I remember, I like John Roush. He was like a no-nonsense, kind of a tough, you know, hardened veteran. Had been around several teams, uh, you know, middle reliever, could close if he had to. But the thing about John Roush, if you remember, is um, I believe he smashed Matt Harvey's phone at one point when Matt Harvey was a rookie. <laughs> and uh, I, if I remember the story correctly, Roush was getting a massage and, and, um, and then – Harvey came in and was like, okay, it's my turn over. Roush was still on the table, and Roush did not take kindly to it, and I believe he smashed Matt Harvey's cell phone 
after that in the 2013 season, which uh, shortly thereafter, Roush was traded. Now, um, was it cause and effect? Don't really know, but um, and probably was. I mean, it probably something to do with it. I, I guess he had a reputation wherever, wherever he was of being a bit surly. And um, But I remember that. I think that's his marker as a Met was that Matt Harvey cell phone issue. And then P.J. Conlon, you know, somebody you want to forget, actually. I mean, it was cute because he was from Ireland and, you know, took that start against the Reds. If you remember that game, I believe the Mets had like a 7 to nothing lead in the second or third inning in Cincinnati, and Conlon gave, gave it almost all back. This is in the 18 season, like um, – I remember that. It was early May of the 18 season. Mm. It was the day before the lineup card fiasco. And um, and Conlon, you know, they take him to this huge lead, and they're like, okay, this is going to be a great story. This guy from Ireland making the start, and he's going to get the win. But no, he was gone in, like, the third, and he gave, like, five of the runs back. So, um, and I know he came back. that He signed with the Dodgers, and he came back to the Mets, all in the minor leagues, of course. Um, but, you know, kind of nondescript. So, yeah, it is kind of a short list. What I remember about John, John Rauch was how huge he was. I saw him in person at a Mets event, and he was bartending, actually. So he was back there, had all these big tattoos, Mike. Uh, um, and, and another thing I remembered, you know, he was a nice enough guy in the moment, for sure. Uh, but it, it, I, what I remember was that he gave up. Uh, uh, my, my girlfriend splurged at the time, my girlfriend splurged to get us uh, uh, seats, with, you know, right behind home plate with the cushions. And it was on. It was on. Uh, uh, it was cheaper than the four hundred dollars because it was on. Um, uh, what what is it called? StubHub at the time uh, in 2012 before anybody was really buying into whether or not the Mets were going to be good because it was early. It was like May or something, and it was against Arizona, and uh, we had like a four to two lead, and all of a sudden John Roush came in in the eighth inning, and we had a five to four lead, uh, uh, de- deficit, and uh, then. We had some runners on, and Daniel Murphy hit it to center field, but for the last out, a guy uh, dove and caught it, and Arizona won. And I actually have video of, of the, this game. I, I, uh, I definitely have some clips of it. I'll have to post at some point what I'm talking about. That's what I remember about John Roush, uh, Scott Schoenweiss. I remember how exacerbated he was when he was look, watching the, the ball uh, fly out on the last game, being one of the, the, the home runs. Uh, given up uh, against the Marlins in 2008 in that last game at Chase Stadium. Um, and I don't remember nearly as much uh, as, as Rich does about P.J. Conlon. Conlon, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it is too bad that these stories, sometimes they just don't pan out. No, they don't. P.J. Conlon, you know, he's the exception to the rule. They say lefties, you know, just have inherent value. Well, his major league career lasted all of 7.2 innings, and he gave up seven earned runs, as Rich alluded to. Uh, you know, John Roush, like Rich said, is a no-nonsense guy, and he sticks out because the, 12, the 2012 season sticks out. There's a lot, of, a lot of side stories to that season. Yeah, they finished 14 games under 500, but a lot of side stories to that season, a lot of good ones. So whoever was on that team is memorable. You know, don't forget that's the year Dickey won 20, and I gave us hit over 30 uh, home runs, et cetera. So anybody who was on that team, you know, I remember. I remember well. And Sean White, as you say, uh, Sam, uh, infamous? I don't know. You know, good guy, but hard to, hard, hard to block out anybody from that 2000 
2007-2008 debacle. Well, and I'll also have to uh, touch on this real quick, just from a um, human story perspective. Um, I, it, I, I forget exactly how it happened, but, uh, you know, it's it's real too bad what happened. Uh, tragically, his, his wife passed. I think it might have been oh. some home accident or something, and, um, you know, it it seems like, you know, Rich, like you say, he, he seems to uh, be a well-to-put-together human in some, you know, fashion or another, regardless of whether it didn't always work out for him. Even though, you know, he, he at certain points, he was a very well-renowned uh, reliever across the Major League Baseball. But, you know, like it, like it goes with so many relievers that come over to the Mets, um, it, it, it doesn't work out, but... Again, you know, sorry for for what he's had to deal with. The, but he he's, seems to have gotten over the adversity. Yeah, I remember that when his wife passed, and um, yeah, I mean, I he's it, it's unfortunate because you know he he had he was an effective reliever before he came to the Mets, even with the Mets. You know, he he had some some certainly some fine outings, but it's just he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and but you know like you said you know he's maintained his sense of humor he maintains his social media presence so good for him you know i he's the kind of guy that of course obviously we don't know him personally but he's the kind of guy that you just by by his personality you kind of wish it ended better for him on the field um and that he was remembered you know even if neutrally but by the the biggest fan base there is in new york he's just not remembered well for his on the field stuff um that's unfortunate but again it's how you react. He can't change the past, but he does seem to have a good disposition now, and he engages with the fans. So good for him. Yeah, and and uh, to touch on a lighter note, when you were talking about John Roush and, and you called him a little surly, all I could think of is surly with a fringe on top, <laughs> or however that song goes. Uh, from Oklahoma. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to a Metzine podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. Our first summer camp edition, really. Uh, amazing to, to be saying that. So fun. Uh, hopefully, this thing uh, gets this thing gets off the ground somehow, some way, safely and securely. So, uh, I'll, I'll go to you first, Rich, with your uh, your last word. Um, what, what, what's on, what's on your mind? What do you got? I got this. Okay. A Y. Okay. That's my last word because it's like, that's where my head is. Okay. Summer camp has started and we see baseball. We see images. That's great. But at the same time, you know, the reality is, I mean, in my mind, the reality of COVID and, and what it could do to this season, not to mention the players is an eighth of a step behind that. And so it's like, all right, okay, so we'll have to deal with that. So, um, like, I don't feel great about it. I want to feel better than I do about the prospect for 60 exciting games. I'm certainly very hopeful, but right now I, I feel okay, and when I just okay, and when I watch it, I'm like, okay, let's hope. That's where I am. Mike, as I go to you for your final word, um, I, I didn't even consider this fact uh, of connection. Uh, this is episode this is the official episode number 60, and we're trying to get a 60-game schedule off of here. Um, so just wanted to touch on that before I send it over to you. It's going to be interesting. You know, every every game is going to have a sense of urgency. That's going to be fun for fans. I'll say that much. Uh, otherwise, my last word is uh, I, 
luck. I wish them luck. I wish everyone luck. You know, there's still a lot about the logistics of all this that are out of their control for as much as for as much protocol and, and you know, operating procedures they, they can drum up and, and, and disseminate amongst teams. There's still much about this that's out of their control uh, with regards to travel and things of that nature. So I just wish them luck. I hope they pull this off. Hope everyone comes out of this safely. Uh, and they follow guidelines and everything uh, works out well. You know, I, I, I bid them luck, the organizations and their, and, and their families, everyone's families, because uh, they're not the only ones ex- exposed to this. So I, I just wish them all luck. Now that we're here and we're started and people are gathering together again, don't forget the games haven't started and uh, travel has yet to begin. So there's the national numbers, and then there's going to be baseballs in numbers. And we have to treat those independently and see where they go. And if the numbers are favorable, march on. Good luck. Mine will be competition, uh, not just the competition on the field, but uh, these diseases that we have to uh, compete with and, and all different things that end up reminding us of our mortality. And it, it, it's, it's something that, uh, unfortunately, we have to deal with, but we, we march forward, we march through uh, just – like uh, like the the uh, great founding fathers of our country did uh, when they signed the Declaration uh, Declaration of Independence this very weekend in 1776. Uh, I don't know whether it was a weekend or not, but uh, some historian out there right now just pushed his glasses up <laughs> and didn't like uh, what I had to say. But what I love about uh, July 4th is it reminds me of baseball. It reminds me of the bicentennial, the image of, of Mr. Met on the yearbook uh, in a patriotic uniform, and it reminds me of America. And, and how much I love this country, how much I love seeing that flag flap at the top of all the ballparks in this country, and especially at City Field where our New York Mets play. So I, I, baseball is the national pastime. As popular as football has become, this game is cherished throughout this land. And I, I want people to remember that, and I want baseball to help to make people remember that. So hopefully we're able to compete and con- consistently and, and continue to compete properly as we try to save as many people as possible in the battle against COVID-19 and we're able to compete enough to get baseball off the ground. So uh, I can't wait to see what, what's uh, in store. Hopefully it's all positive from here on out. And there's only one way to finish this evening on a Met Team podcast, other than thanking you for listening the way to sell it, Rich, let's, have, let's go. You take it. Well, I'll take it. And what I'll say is let's go Mets. Let's go Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Hopefully we're saying that at least to the television in a few weeks. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. Happy July 4th.